0: Welcome back to Bible Love. We had a week off last week. We had uh, some changes with scheduling, and so we decided to take a break. Sorry for folks that, that missed us and for folks that needed a break from us. You're welcome, I guess. But we are back. Um, moving into a new book of the Bible. Mary Balfour will explain that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But today is the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. So I thought we would start with that prayer. Let us pray. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted in a wonderful order the ministries of angels and mortals. Mercifully grant that as your holy angels always serve and worship you in heaven, so by your appointment they may help us here on earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, we've got one of our angels here on earth joining us today. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Tony Hopkins. He's your favorite. Y'all love him. Bible love. You love him, love him, love him. And as we told you, um, and we love him too. And as we told you, we have asked Tony to join us this year, um, as we sort of introduce new books of the Bible. So we're, we're putting him on double trouble this time. We've asked him to do two. Ezra and Nehemiah. So welcome, Tony. So glad. Thank you. Here.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me back.
1: Yeah. You're always going to be back because you're you're so loved. Um, so we have gone through 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which Alan and I laughed and talked about a lot. Like, you know, we were like, oh, repeat, repeat. But we actually, like, like you said, we learned a lot, a different lens, a different voice. Um, and it kind of came at the right time. Right. But now we're excited about sort of digging into um, these two books of the Bible, which again are not as well known to people. It's they're not, when you think about the Bible, you don't think about Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't, maybe y'all do, um, but I don't. So you all, as always, and we will link this. Tony has given us some awesome notes about, um about this, but, just go for it. Tell us what we need to know about Ezra and Nehemiah, please. Well, thanks
2: again for having me today. Um, this is new material. This is material we have not covered before in our Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. Um, you remember that First uh, and Second Kings is one book in the Hebrew Bible. First and Second Chronicles is one book. First and Second Samuels is one book. Same for Ezra and Nehemiah. Two books in the Protestant Old Testament, but one book in the Hebrew Bible, and there have been a lot of theories, which means a lot of speculation, about who wrote these books. For a long time, biblical scholars said that Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles were all written by Ezra. Mm. Then it became popular to say, um, the same person wrote these four books, but we, we don't know who that person is. Then there was a group that said, Somebody wrote First and Second Chronicles, somebody wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, and an editor linked them together because there are some threads that run through the four books. Maybe the best thing to say is there have been a lot of sources, both oral and written, that have contributed to the form of Ezra and Nehemiah as we have it. If we think about a date of composition, clearly this is after the return from exile, maybe 100 or 200 years. After that, so to pick a number, I'm going to say somewhere between 400 and 300 BCE. Um, The <clears throat> The context for Ezra and Nehemiah is the history of the political kingdom of Israel. As a political entity, Israel was a united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, and that lasts about a hundred years, roughly ten twenty two to nine twenty two BCE. Mm-hmm. Then the kingdom split. Um, Solomon is king of, uh, or Solomon's son rather, is king of the southern kingdom. Uh, but the northern kingdom goes their own way. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, which includes. Uh, Judah, Benjamin, and significantly the city of Jerusalem, where both the throne is and the temple is. So the southern kingdom is smaller, but it has sort of the religious and political corner on uh, the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians in 722 or 721 BCE. It never exists again. It, it, it disappears from history and from scripture. The southern kingdom continues until 586 when the Babylonians come, lay waste to Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry huge numbers of the Jewish people off into exile in Babylon. Uh, That is the catastrophic event in the history of the Hebrew people. And so uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, represent what happens after that exile. In 539 BCE, Cyrus of Persia takes over Babylon. And there are several ancient historical sources that say this happened without a battle. Uh, Babylon was in decline. Persia was on the rise. And apparently all of the leaders got together and said there's no point in having a war. So the Persians take over. The Babylonians had ruled through fear, through repression, through forced conformity, through dramatic exiles carrying people away from where they were from. The Persians, good news for God's people, were the opposite of that. They were very tolerant. If you will be a loyal vassal state, we'll let you have your own culture. You can worship your God. You can have your temple. The Persians actually help fund the rebuilding of the temple. So Cyrus of Persia begins to send the Jews home in 538 B.C. And over the next hundred years, there are four major waves of Jewish people who come back to particularly Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem, which becomes known as the New Judah. In between those major waves, I think there were people that trickled in, individuals and families, but there are four big waves. In 538, as soon as Cyrus says, some of you can go home, there was a big group that did that under the leadership of Sheshbazer. He was he the son. So well. Sorry?
1: He said that so well.
2: <laughs> um, he was the son of of King Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was king of Judah when it was conquered. So his son leads the first wave. Doesn't seem surprising. The king's son leads the first wave of people back. In 520, a new wave comes, and in a way, it's even more important than the first wave. Zerubbabel comes as governor having been granted authority by the Persians and receiving funding from them to help rebuild the temple. That takes about five years. From 520 to 515 BCE, the temple is rebuilt. So this is the second temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians. So this second temple is also known as Zerubbabel's temple because he was the governor when it was built. Coming back with Zerubbabel was the high priest Joshua. So he undoubtedly helped with the liturgical worship kinds of things as the temple was reestablished. And in Ezra 6, one of the really significant events um, in Ezra and Nehemiah, in Ezra 6, the Jews celebrate Passover in Jerusalem in the temple for the first time in 70 years. Can you imagine What a celebration that would have been. Wow. The third wave, uh, significantly later, second wave, 520, come all the way to 458. uh, And Ezra leads a group of people home. And Ezra is really remembered for reestablishing the priority of the law of Moses. The Old Testament says that when Ezra comes back from Babylon, he has in his possession a a copy of the book of the law. We don't know exactly what that was, but my guess is that was all of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then probably some of the prophetic writings that become the second major section of Scripture in the Hebrew Bible. But but Ezra thinks the law of Moses is the key to reestablishing Judaism in the Holy Land and puts tremendous emphasis on obedience to the law. He is remembered for what we would call a revival, knowing that the people have lost touch with the law. And for Ezra, if you've lost touch with the law, you've lost touch with God. So he calls all the people to Jerusalem. They spend all morning listening to the law of God being read. And then Ezra charges the people to pledge obedience to the law and has representatives from the people, probably um, by their tribal ancestry, sign a covenant. They come to the altar and sign a covenant saying, we will be God's people. We will obey the law of Moses. Um, And so he's remembered for that huge religious revival. The fourth and final wave happens in 445. And I'll mention just in passing, there's some debate about exactly when these waves occurred, but the, the chronology I'm giving you is what the chronology recorded in the text says. So apart from compelling evidence, I'll just kind of stick with that. But Nehemiah, the second book that we're introducing today, uh, Nehemiah is the one who leads this fourth and final wave. Most of all, Nehemiah is remembered for rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah begins, uh, Nehemiah's brother Hanini visits Nehemiah in Persia. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes, (coughs) excuse me, This is an incredibly important position. Um, Yes, he tasted the king's food to make sure he wasn't poisoned, but he was a confidant. This is like being a member of the presidential cabinet. He's a really significant person. When he hears from Hanini, his brother, that the wall around Jerusalem is in such terrible disrepair, he asked the king permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Um, again, think about the resignation of a member of a presidential cabinet. That's a big deal. But Artaxerxes trusts Nehemiah, is very fond of Nehemiah, shares his sympathy about what's going on in his homel- homeland, and sends him back as governor. <clears throat> Nehemiah faces external Opposition, the Ammonites, the Samaritans, uh, Samaria and Amnon are geographically bordering Judah. And I think as they see Judah kind of being restored, they're a little bit fearful. So they tell Persia, well, you know, they're doing all of this so they can cut loose from Persia, which wasn't true. But that was their way of trying to undermine the rebuilding of the wall of the reestablishment of Judah. Nehemiah also faces internal apathy. By the way, uh, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah appear in this time and chasten the people, saying, You've rebuilt your own houses, but you haven't rebuilt the house of God and you haven't rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. So, in the face of both external opposition and internal apathy, does that sound like church work?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the
2: face of external opposition and internal apathy, Nehemiah manages to get the wall built. Uh, He is also remembered for social, political, economic reform. Jerusalem doesn't have enough residents, particularly uh, in civic terms. They don't have the tax base they need to help support the city and everything that's going on. And in religious terms, they don't have enough tithes to support the work of the Levites. So Nehemiah, by a lottery, by a lot, brings one-tenth of the people who live in the area around Jerusalem into the city. And scholars debate how eager these people were to come in. Some think that people felt like it was an honor, and now that the wall was built, they were happy to have the security of being inside the city wall. Others interpret this as more of a forced relocation. I don't think the text is really clear about it. But that's very significant because that bolsters the population of Jerusalem. Nehemiah realizes there's things are in bad shape economically. So he eliminates interest on loans, which actually is found in the Levitical law that you shouldn't charge people interest when you loan them money, but that had fallen out of practice. So he eliminates interest on loans. He reduces the taxes for the people. Um, That's always a good platform. Less tax means more popularity with the people. And then finally, uh, Nehemiah institutes some religious reforms. He uh brings the people back to a much more carefully observed Sabbath. And uh, he brings them back to the more rigorous practice of tithing, especially in support of the Levites. I mentioned with First and Second Chronicles that the Levites are so important that some people speculate that the author or the editor might have been a Levite. Same thing is true when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites, who are technically assistants to the priests, almost seem more important than the priests. Um, so all of that um, is is what happens under the leadership of these two very important people. And then the other thing I would want to say about both Ezra and Nehemiah is they are memorable for their prayers. When you think of prayer in the Old Testament, you think of the Psalms. Second only to the Psalms, Ezra and Nehemiah give us some of the most thoughtful, some of the most beautiful, some of the most compelling prayers in the Old Testament. Um, so if you're interested in prayer, if you're interested in worship, I said this about Chronicles, it's still true. If you're interested in worship, read Ezra and Nehemiah and you get a good window into all of that. Oh my so, gosh, honey.
1: Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> um, first of all, if you're listening and you're like, "Oh my gosh, that is like the most wonderful history lesson," but I don't have it like all in my head, I want to remind you <clears throat> we are linking these show notes so that you can go through and um, and read all that. Right. But I, for me, what kind of stuck out, and I just want to, I'm wondering if other people who are listening, Ezra was. Really in to Moses and and that law that that covenant covenantal law and um, I have a thought about that we can talk about later but um also and then Nehemiah w- built that wall right and so like yes. you just want to kind of hold up those yep. two the law yeah. and the wall in the wall the mm-hmm. wall and the wall that's mm-hmm. what kind of and then of course the prayers. Um, I was thinking about the covenant and you actually like asked this as a question um, in your things, but it made me think about it. Like, would we go and sign something today? Right. Like uh, with our covenant. And I think I talked about this before, but when we were sort of in the midst of the pandemic and we were getting back into worship, um, we were still outside, but like I had our parishioners sign a covenant Mm-hmm. And said in it, like just as in the Old Testament, when we would sign these covenants, you know, will you wear your mask? Will you stand six feet apart? I mean, this was very early, very early, early on, but sort of used that example. So I've actually had my folks do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um Some felt very comfortable doing it and some didn't. Um, But that's I mean, I, that's really pretty like forceful, you know. But but in the end, God is always in covenant with us, right? And sometimes, like when we're little kids, you know, my parents would have me sign something. I will not drop out of um, ballet. You know, we've talked about this before. You know, using this example, I will not stop playing the piano because I'm begging them to give me piano. You know, whatever it is, and God kind of has to use that kind of thing with us, as children. Isn't
2: there? Isn't there something about a signature? I mean, you know, a handshake is one thing. But when you put your name on a line, I mean, I think there's a psychology to that. Yeah. uh, And so that's coming to our language. I'm signing on for this. Well, that comes because we literally ask people, think about the Declaration of Independence.
1: Yeah. We're
2: we're signing on for this. So that was a, I love what you did, Mary Balfour, at, at Resurrection.
1: Yeah, now, and I mean, even every Sunday, and every Sunday, I don't know how you do this in the Baptist church, but in the Episcopal church, you know, we have our parish records and we write every Sunday, like if yesterday, 16th Sunday after Pentecost, how many people were there, and then, you know, we sign our names. And I
0: okay.
1: actually, like, I don't know about you, Alan, but like, there's something to that every Sunday, like, I was here. I, I was here and I worshiped yeah. the Lord, and I was in covenant with the Lord. Do you ever feel that way out? We've never really talked about that, but there's something. Yeah. To it.
0: I mean, I think there's the record keeping thing. Like I'm reminded of talking with, I think it was Jack Hardaway. He's a priest at grace Episcopal in Anderson. And he, we were talking about this and in COVID there was questions. How do we record attendance and all of this? And he was talking about his, my church is like 50 years old. His church is, pushing 200 or something it's old and so he could go back in these books and see what they did in 1917 and see that people showed up and see that in the midst of last time we did this whole thing and there's a priest that was signing off saying the people of god gathered no. on sunday yeah the thing that the signature thing and some of the conversation about th- these books to me is like it's pledge mm. season this morning i'm writing the letter from the priest about Here's yeah. your pledge card. These kind of like that's almost as close as we get in the Episcopal tradition to have parishioners mm-hmm. sign things like vestry has to sign a covenant, things like that. You turn in that pledge card and you're saying, I'm a part of this community, whatever it is. Um, and, and it goes in making a commitment. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. made mm-hmm. fruitful that uh fortuitous that Ezra and Nehemiah came up because I hear in your overview, there's some talk about. You've rebuilt your own houses, but what are you doing for the church community? Right. <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll preach. That'll preach.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh,
1: I this, that might be in your, in your letter this week. Did you? There you <laughs> go.
0: I, no, I already wrote it and sent it off. So it's okay. not going to be in there. Um, and then, you know, this idea, the interest bit, right? Like, what are we going to do financially? How are we going to uh, arrange our affairs? Like, this is real practical things that, that we still wrestle with today. What does yeah, it look like? Sure. The financial piece of it.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: And that's another like today, the I think the things that we are a part of, the things that we're a member of, that language of membership and the church has lost what it is because right. now membership is what I pay, whether it's a country club or a gym or a church. Right. And so that's how we I think that modern folks see a covenant more than just signing an a name and saying, I'm a part of this. What am I actually giving my money and, to?
2: And I think, Alan, that, that for the most part, we think, what does the membership entitle me to? Not what does the membership represent a commitment that I'm making to yeah. the organization?
1: Yeah. And that's such the difference in like what yes. we have to work really hard to get people to understand in the church, I think. And this goes back way back into the Old Testament, which is wonderful. Cause sometimes we just are like, what does Matthew, Mark and Luke and John have to give me? And like there's a lot that Ezra and Nehemiah have to give us. But yeah, I have, I definitely have had parishioners in my career that are like, what is the church going to give me? You know, yes. instead yes. of how can I please God? How can I glorify God? So when I'm talking about my stewardship and I'm talking, I'm like, it's not what the church can give me. And we hope the church gives you a lot. Yes. But that's not the point. The point is how can you glorify God in this community, you know, that happens under the, and so, you know, I, my pledge session is ending today is the last day. And so yesterday I'm holding up the pledge card in the middle of the church. Right. I'm like, technically it's over tomorrow. And I want to give you one last chance to glorify God, you know, because I really want them to feel that as glorifying God, not what I can get out of it, you know? And I think Ezra and Nehemiah are giving us like a great example of that.
0: And that I think it's really easy to say you're a part of a Christian community today. Like it's something you show up on Sunday, like no one's threatening. Like. For these folks in the middle of the exile, right, this comes up. So there, you know, I'm reflecting on what you're talking about. What can the church give me? That presumes the church is some other thing for, yeah. for which owes me something rather than the church is something that's incomplete without me. Right. And here's, yeah, you know, we'll these people that, uh, in <laughs> the exile, right? Like that's all they had, you know, yeah. literally everything was torn down and taken from them. All they had was each other. So they couldn't look at, like, what's the temple going to give me? What's what, you know, for them, it's the people of God needed each other just to make it through to the next day.
2: And part of the genius of Paul's body image, eye eye, ear, hand, feet, the body's incomplete without you. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. Well, I've tried to give us the good. There's a lot of good in Ezra and Nehemiah. There is. But like everyone else. Like us, uh, they have their flaws and their blind spots, and for them <clears throat> it it comes down to inclusion versus exclusion. Mm. If you get so zealous for the law of Moses, if you equate that for covenant with God, there's really no place for people who aren't Jewish or Israelite. And so um, Nehemiah forbids marriage. To people who are not Jewish or uh, of Hebrew descendants. Um, Contrast, you know, this is, excuse me, this is one perspective in the Bible. Contrast that to the book of Esther, where her marriage to a foreigner, God uses to save the Jewish people. So these debates that we have about inclusion and exclusion, they've been going on for a long time. But the worst thing in Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra goes beyond Nehemiah. Not only does he say, you may no longer marry a foreigner, Ezra demands that all wives who are foreigners and children of those wives be expelled from Jerusalem. Now think, the people were in exile for 48 years. Anybody who was younger than 48 when Cyrus issues his decree has never lived anywhere besides Babylon. Hmm. So there were a lot of those people that fell in love with non-Hebrews, got married, and they finally come home to the Holy Land, into the temple, and they are forced to separate from their wives and their children. And in a day when women couldn't go out and get jobs, the text doesn't narrate this, but there's no doubt that some of these women turned in, were turned to trafficking to try to keep their children alive. Uh, there's no doubt that there was poverty, that there was hunger, and that there was even death. And all of that was done under the name of religious zeal. So, you know, when we think about What do we need to learn from Ezra and Nehemiah? Um, What really matters? What is the heart of our faith? Is it purity so that we need to say we're going to set these narrow boundaries for who belongs? Or is it sharing the love of God? So to me, the way the question really crystallizes. uh, When Jesus was asked, what's the most important part of our faith? love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But he said, you can't say that without saying in the same breath, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, If we become too zealous or perhaps too narrow in our understanding of loving God, uh, then we fail to love our neighbor. And I think that's what Ezra does. And I think that's still a tremendous danger for the church. It's still...
0: A tremendous Absolutely.
2: danger for the community of faith. Um, in the end, um, churches have to divide, define themselves either by exclusion or inclusion. And so, with all deference to Ezra and Nehemiah, what would Jesus do?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's I think it's healthy. For us to understand that these problems of inclusion and exclusion that we are going through, some of our brothers and sisters, the Episcopal Church went through a long time ago, but some of our brothers and sisters and other denominations are going through uh, and lots of people. This is something that's been happening forever and ever and ever. And it's that, you know, using the law, using the Bible as a weapon, you know, which is just not always the right thing to do. So I really appreciate that. I also appreciate that, yes, there are a lot of positive things about Ezra and Nehemiah and who they are, but also that they were human beings and they were perfect, just like we are. You know, we're not perfect. We're real people. I always say Christianity is so easy. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's all of us people who are humans that mess it up, which is gonna happen because we're humans and that's the way it works so just always super grateful to to know more about these people and also to be able to be like i mean hey they did it too you know like it's not like this is all brand new stuff right so
2: and uh, thanks be to god that we live on this side of jesus
1: absolutely always 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 Um, I don't really know a better way to, to end it other than that. And remembering listeners, as always, that we love you, but most importantly, God does.